Welcome to Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund, where we take on the critical civil and human rights issues of our day. I'm your host, Kanya Bennett, coming to you from Washington, D.C. And to start off this and every show, let me shout out the pod squad who will be sharing their time and talent and take on the challenges and opportunities before us as we work to save our democracy. We have some great folks on pod for the cause today. Let me welcome C.C. Huddleston, who is a voting rights field coordinator for the Prepared to Vote and Voting Rights Defender Projects at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Through LDF's Prepared to Vote and Voting Rights Defender Projects, CC is equipping voters with the information necessary to protect voting rights and support Black political participation. CC is also an alumna of the Leadership Conference and the Pod for the Cause. So very happy to have you here today, CC. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. I'm so happy to be with you all today. Wonderful, wonderful. Maria, let me turn to you and properly introduce you. Maria Town is the president and CEO of the American Association of People with Disabilities. In this role, Maria works to increase the political and economic power of people with disabilities. Maria has also served in local and federal governments to advocate for the rights and needs of people with disabilities. Thank you so much for joining us today, Maria. How are you doing? I'm good. Very, very happy to be here and have this conversation with y'all. So before we get into today's conversation on civic engagement with these two great guests, Cece and Maria, I want to provide some context. At the Leadership Conference, we describe voting as the language of American democracy. At the core of what it means to be American is the ability to participate in civic life. When we vote, we make decisions that impact our lives, our families, and our communities. People of color, women, people with disabilities, people who are low income, and Native Americans had to fight to ensure access to the ballot box for more than a century. And today, that fight continues. And let's be clear, what we are talking about is state-sanctioned, government-sanctioned efforts that make it harder for people to vote. We're not just talking about individual actors here. We are talking about Supreme Court decisions that have stripped away core protections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that ensured voters of color had the safeguards necessary to participate fully in our country's political process. Despite the pandemic and deliberate barriers to the ballot, however, in 2020, we saw the highest voter turnout in recent history, with nearly 160 million people casting their vote. College students turned up in record numbers, with 66% of students who are registered casting ballots in the 2020 election. This is 14% higher than the turnout in 2016. We saw that same trend in the last midterm election cycle, when college students turned out in a number double from 19% to 40% from what it was in 2014 to 2018. People with disabilities also turned out in strikingly high numbers. That turnout increased 17.7 million in 2020, which was up from 16 million in 2016. Expanded access to voting options such as mail-in ballots helped this high turnout. But some state lawmakers saw our enthusiasm, saw our turnout, 
and are now trying to make it even harder for us to vote. Since 2020, 30 states have enacted anti-voter bills that target Black, Brown, and Native voters, voters with disabilities, and others. Across the country, we have seen the introduction of over 400 restrictive voter bills in state legislatures. And more keep coming. But turnout hasn't stopped. And since the Dobbs decision, we have seen new female voters outnumber males by at least 10% in nine states as of mid-August. That turnout sounds a little like my approach to life. If someone tells me I can't do something, now again, something that I'm lawfully allowed to do, then I am going to do it. And so I'm curious, Cece, and I'm curious, Maria, how are young people voting these days? How do they view it? Are they taking the same approach? Is that their philosophy? Cece, let me start with you. I think there's a double-sided answer to that. I think young folks are feeling challenged. It's like, you tell me I can't do something, and especially the way that I think Gen Z and millennials are set up. is like, you tell us we're going to do something, then we're going to do it. So I think that challenge and saying that these are the restrictions and these are the things we're going to do to take your vote away allows us to come back in larger numbers. But I think on the other side of that is that if you want these larger numbers to come out, you're going to have to give us something to vote for. So it's like, okay, like we're going to come back, we're going to resist, but is our resistance going to be met with the promises that you made us when you wanted our vote to come out? So I think that's what millennials and Gen Z and, and young voters are pretty much struggling with. Thank you, Cece. Maria, what's your take? I really agree with Cece's last point. I think that young voters, the idea, you know, voting will not save us is a pretty profound one for a lot of young voters. Young voters, especially engaged in a lot of efforts to turn out the vote in 2020, and from a, I'll use the disability community as an example, the number of young people in nursing homes is rising. And one of the very exciting things about candidate Joe Biden was that he promised significant transformative investments in home and community-based services that would keep people out of nursing homes, group homes, and other congregate settings. Well, now that Build Back Better you know, did not happen, and we saw the Inflation Reduction Act completely stripped of all of the caregiving agenda, looking into the midterms and looking into the 2024 presidential election, I think that there are a lot of young people who are like, is this really the tool that I want to use to build a just and equal society? At the same time, especially for young people, again, young disabled people, young disabled people of color, whose competencies are doubted at every moment in their lives, voting is a way to have a voice and to have a say in their community and is a way for them to assert their personhood. And I think for a lot of young people, that is especially important. One of the other things that I like to stress and that I think needs to happen more in these conversations about democracy and civic engagement is making sure that we're looking at every race down the ballot and ensuring that everyone, including young folks, know that in addition to voting, you can do things like showing up at your school board meeting and with attacks on critical race theory and these bans on books, making sure that young people are showing up to ensure that books by Latinx authors, books about LGBTQIA people, books about Black people and disabled people aren't banned in their schools is incredibly important. And so when we talk about democracy, voting is one part of that. And I think a lot of young people might be attracted to voting and more. You both said in your opening comments things that really resonated with me. Maria, you just said that voting will not save us. 
And you said that voters are looking for voting plus more, right? Obviously, you know, Maria, Cece, you two are tasked with, charged with this important responsibility of motivating constituencies to vote. Vote, that is your job. Talk to me about the work that you're doing and some of the challenges you face. If there is this sentiment that voting will not save us, how do you stay motivated? How do you continue to do your jobs? Talk a little bit about that work. So that's actually a great point because a key part of our work, and I completely agree with Maria that voting alone will not save us because there's a lot that has to go into motivating the people who are elected officials into enacting laws that will actually affect and create positive change in your life. Our work centers on expanding access to the ballot. So voting alone at the way that things are right now will not save us because in states where these like abortion bans and other things that where these laws are passing, most black populations in these states don't have access to the ballot. Like they're going to be hit with voter purges or they're going to be hit with voter suffrage intimidations or they're going to be like completely voter intimidation. We've had polling locations with folks with KKK and Confederate flags show up to these polling locations because they don't want you to vote. And when these laws pass and they say, oh, this is what the people voted for. This is not what the people voted for because you blocked their access to the ballot. So that is why you need campaigns and you need movements to make sure that that even access to the ballot is there to begin with. And also you need these politicians who are going to be motivated to enact those laws to create access to the ballot. Maria, how about you? How is your day to day trying to keep folks motivated and appreciating why this right to vote is so critical and why it must be honored? It's funny you mentioned that because part of my day today was spent preparing for National Disability Voting Rights Week, which is September 12th to the 16th. For that week, every day we're going to have one action that people can take to expand the registration of disabled voters and build the power of the disability vote. And the action that we're going to be focused on in the last day of that week is holding elected officials accountable and keeping elected officials accountable. And I think this speaks to, again, voting alone won't save us because once you vote, we have to consistently remind those in power, whether they are elected or appointed officials, that we are their constituents, that they are elected to serve our communities. And there are many barriers to that process as well. Things as basic as maintaining virtual meetings for town halls, because we are still in a pandemic that is disproportionately impacting disabled people and communities of color. Things like having access, whether it's closed captioning or other forms of language access to connect with your constituents. All of these pieces are so important. For that week, we have also developed an issues guide to highlight just how your vote is directly connected to the things that you experience on a day-to-day -day basis, whether that's like trash pickup, which is a very motivating issue for voters in local elections, or sidewalk accessibility, or things like abortion and reproductive health and reproductive justice. I think that there are a lot of people, young and old, who feel like their vote doesn't count. And I think one of the things that we have to show people is that their vote does. I, you know, used to work in the city of Houston, and I have a friend, a phenomenal queer Latina organizer who lost her city council election by 12 votes. 
And I think wow. about that. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it's not that the, the candidate who won was an, like a bad candidate. She was also a great candidate. But how many elections can we all point to like that, that have these razor thin margins? These are often elections at the local level. And I think continuing to highlight those examples can help motivate people. And I also like to remind folks just how hard we fought to have the right to vote and how hard we have to continue to have the right to vote. Folks under guardianship, people who are incarcerated, who are often disabled people, will lose their right to vote. So you think about Nichelle Nichols, for all of the Star Trek fans out there, she was under a conservatorship. It is likely that she'd lost her right to vote. That happens to thousands and thousands of Americans, and there's not an attack by a legislature that's happening right now. That's just the way that the process works, and we can't let that stand. That's exactly right, Maria. So I want to go back to a comment you made, Cece, at the open. You said we need to vote for something. We need something, an agenda. We need a plan that is consistent with what is going to turn us out to vote, given that's what we are experiencing in our day-to-day lives, our families, our communities. How will our needs be met when we go to the polls. And so I want to ask both of you, given that you're representing particular constituencies, Cece, you're doing a lot of work with the Black community, Maria, obviously the disability community. What is it that folks want to see on the ballot? What's going to turn out folks? What's going to motivate them? That is a great question. A key way that I think about this in terms of what is going to motivate them that hasn't done before. And I think you have to recognize what communities we're not reaching out to. So if we're saying like what's going to motivate a new constituency or a new voting population, then where have we not gone before? So we always talk about, oh, going in the church basement and meeting the communities where they are. But sometimes those aren't the same thing. It's like if we're always going in the church basement, those are folks who are probably going to turn out anyway. But are we going to the high schools at the local public schools that are often forgotten? Are we always going to that magnet school that we know is already funded by a university? Or are we going to dispensaries if we want to pass marijuana laws? Or are we going directly in communities like we know they have a Planned Parenthood or we know they have an abortion clinic in their community, but are we actually talking to the citizens and talking to the people who really need this service? And again, like I, as someone who graduated university, I am very proud of myself. But in addition, I am the only one in my family who graduated from university. So are we talking to my cousins who are back in Detroit and who are doing these things? So I think that is a importance is like what's going to be on the ballot and we have to ask the community members who we haven't typically asked before. They may not be in church on Sunday, they may not be in school or in university classrooms on Monday. So where are we going different in the community? Are we going to the jazz festivals where we know that these artists are going to show up to? Are we going to different summer jams festivals or things like that? So I think a key way of finding these things out is to survey the parts of the community that we haven't typically reached before. You're spot on. We do. We have to reach all the constituencies, which really is everyone. Everyone has the right to vote and needs to understand and appreciate that. Maria, you were talking about trash pickup, sidewalk, accessibility, that those things are all on the ballot. And so if you are concerned about any issue, right, there is a way to make your voice heard by casting a ballot. And if we're engaging the same constituencies, right, then we're only going to maybe get a limited constituency that has one particular concern that maybe has been longstanding that gets addressed through the ballot. 
So Maria, I want to raise the same question with you that I just raised with Cece. Cece had talked about giving folks something to vote for. So Maria, what are those opportunities that will bring folks in the disability community to the ballot box? What are folks concerned about? What are they thinking about at any level of government? I think that there are sort of two levels. There's defense and offense. We see the importance of both of these things in what's happening around voting rights. Some of the work that all of us are having to do, the whole of the pod squad, is really defend the systems that are currently there, even though we know that they are inadequate and have weaknesses. And then in other states, we might be playing offense, right? We might be able to push for more progressive voting options and access to the ballot. And the same is true in the disability community. For some folks, making sure that the Americans with Disabilities Act is not eroded and that other disability civil rights protections like Section 504 stay in place is a really big deal. Every year at the federal level, we see threats to these laws, and they often have names like the ADA Notification Act, which sounds totally harmless and, in fact, would completely erode the spirit of the law. Medicaid expansion continues to be a huge issue, and that's both an offense and a defense issue because we have states that still haven't expanded in the 12-plus years that it's been an option, and we have states where Medicaid continues to be under threat. Another area where there's a core sort of defensive posture that we have to take is continued funding within disability services and supports systems. So things like funding and support for independent living, home and community-based services, area agencies on aging. We really have to be vigilant to make sure that these funding levels don't drop. The same thing around inclusive education and funding of Individuals with Disabilities Education Act services. On the offensive side, I think that core issues are things like broadband expansion and funding. There is a huge digital divide in the disability community, our experience by disabled people. This is a result of both our significant experiences with poverty and aging. The majority of disabled people in the U.S. are older adults. And when I say that, I mean like older adults of color, Native and tribal older adults as well. There are other pieces that I think are hugely motivating things like accessible transportation, affordable and accessible housing continue to be really significant. And I think what you're hearing me say is that all issues are disability issues. And what's going to motivate disabled people to vote is that when we see candidates on any side of the spectrum who get that, right, and who recognize that we're here, all too often we don't even see candidates addressing disabled voters. And so right now, I think, unfortunately, we have a really low bar for being excited, which is that people just use the word disability. And I want to get us to a place where we demand more than that. Yes, our standards must be set much higher than Mm -hmm. that. We are glad that the term disability is being in accessibility. Those terms are being worked into the mainstream and are part of those running for office, their platforms, their agendas. But the reality is we actually need those terms to be more than a hashtag. We need folks to actually understand what it means if you are committing yourself to a civil rights, disability rights agenda. Well, then these are the policies that need to be pursued. This is what it actually looks like. And Maria, you actually talked about holding electeds accountable. So you get folks there. 
you then need to hold them accountable. And so I want us to talk a little bit about how we do that because yes, great. We know we need to increase numbers. We need everyone voting here, right? But turnout is not enough. Once you get someone in office, we need to ensure that that elected is actually honoring the agenda, adhering to the agenda that was put forward. That is what got this person elected. What are some of the ways you work with your constituency to ensure that electeds are held accountable once they are installed? We've done a couple of things. And just to describe how we orient this work, we have an initiative called RevUp. RevUp stands for Register, Educate, Vote, Use Your Power. And so the accountability piece, I think, fits into that use your power pillar very well. What we have set up is 32 different state disability voting coalitions. So these are collections of individuals and organizations, some of which are disability specific, but many League of Women Voters chapters, for example, are a member of these coalitions and other organizations. And part of it is making sure we work with these coalitions to help educate people on how to meet with your elected officials, what that means when you go and talk to a staffer. We may highlight key issues that are going on in the state and basically provide support to do mobilizations or advocacy alerts. Sometimes we actually hear from them, hey, we need AAPD's support and amplification of these key items so that we can hold our elected officials accountable and we'll work across our network to provide backing and support for, let's say, key disability organizers in Detroit. One of the other things that we do is help people host inclusive town halls and forums. We help provide resources and technical expertise. And I think that that is a really important point when we're talking about voter engagement, outreach, and accountability is that these things, they take passion and they take a sort of willingness, but they also take resources. And so one thing that I would ask everybody to do is begin to budget for inclusion and accessibility so that it is no longer an afterthought. And that is something that we have to stress with all of our networks as well and begin to, going back to something that like Cece said, think about who you haven't reached before. We need all of our organizations to take that message in. So the other thing that we do a lot of is work with our coalitions to expand their tables, expand who is at the table, so that, you know, when they are working to hold elected officials and those in power accountable, they are truly kind of representative of broad coalitions and presenting nuanced and intersectional recommendations that don't leave anybody behind. Cece, what about you? What is happening on LDF's end to ensure that those electeds who are installed as a result of Black voter turnout specifically, right, are doing the things that we sent them to do wherever it may be, local, state or federal level. So a key thing that ODF is doing is providing resources. And in our lovely C3 fashion, we provide resources, facts and interpretations, and we allow community members to make of that what they will. 
I think a great example is our redistricting work in Louisiana, where we created maps to say, hey, like we know that you have these districts for the U.S. congressional districts in Louisiana, but you only have one majority district when you could have two. So we created those resources and those maps for community members and for our partner organizations. And they work with state legislatures to say, hey, like we're actually going to put this into a bill and submit these maps for redistricting. So creating those resources and just saying like, hey, these are some things that we have. This is what you can provide to your state legislatures. And those are some things that we can do with it. So I think that's probably the most efficient way is to create things and allow the community members to know what's best for them. So that's also a key thing, especially as a national organization, is that we don't like to go into communities and say, mm, we noticed this thing, you guys should probably change it. Like, nah, like no one can tell you what's best for your city, your district, your state, your county, your parish. You are the best person to determine what's best for your environment and your neighborhood. And then you want to use national organizations to figure out how we can not just fund in terms of just sending money, but how we can work together to make sure that all resources needed are provided. Something that you both are touching on, even though we're talking about two particular constituencies, we're talking about the disability community, we're talking about the Black community, people of color, so we're talking about disability access, we're talking about racial justice. But Maria, you made this point that really, when you take a look at the issues of importance to us, these are issues that are shared across the board. Disability issues are our issues. Racial justice issues are your issues. We all really have a shared civil rights agenda. And so even though we're talking about how we're reaching particular constituencies with respect to voting, I want to talk a little bit about how we are expanding the table, as you described it, Maria. How are we coming together? How are we working together so that we're really talking about a shared civil rights agenda here? And we are not just having one-off conversations about a particular constituency. Now, those are very important conversations to have, these one-off conversations about constituencies. But as we know, we are stronger as a collective. So Maria and Cece, I want you both to talk a little bit about how we're bringing sort of others along with us, how we're getting folks to realize that your issues are my issues in terms of the groups that have been most marginalized and disenfranchised throughout our history. So Cece, let me start with you you and hear a little bit about maybe how you're partnering with other allies to expand this interest in voting and to increase voter turnout. So we're partnering with different organizations, especially like in our target states along the South. But I actually wanted to shout out Maria. And as much as she doesn't know that she taught me at my time at Leadership Conference, I love listening to her talk in almost every meeting that I attended with her. And a key thing at LDF, we have a poll monitor program um, where we send people to polling locations to check if they open on time, if there's any voter intimidation or anything that the polling location needs assistance with. And the key thing that we always find is that these polling locations are not accessible. And it's also a huge red flag because a lot of these are at schools and at community centers that should already be accessible. So we go and we make sure we check for van accessible parking if doorknobs are able to be opened with a closed fist. If you have a polling location that is not the main entrance, is that actual accessible parking close to the actual polling location door or is it close to the main door? We know the intersectionality exists, but we just want to make sure that we're looking out for multiple communities, even if it's outside of what 
I guess our, I mean, honestly, I think our audience is everyone that needs to vote. So I don't want to say target audience. So that's just one way that we collab and we work specifically with state organizations, similar to what I said before, in terms of we can't tell anybody what's best for their community. So how are we working with fraternities and sororities and folks in Huntsville, but also for some folks in Biloxi, Mississippi, to figure out what can work across boards and even having those organizations across the state. So Alabama is going through redistricting, Louisiana is going through redistricting. How can we make a bridge to support one another in similar efforts with also recognizing our differences and learning from those differences as well? Maria, how are you all expanding your reach, expanding coalition and the tables at which you're sitting? Before I answer that, it's Cece, I was actually going to shout out you and the work of, of LTF. <laughs> I um. love this love fest. I love um. it. Coalition at its finest. Yeah, I don't know if you know, but I'm from Louisiana. Oh, I am so mad. Yeah, it, it happens. <laughs> yeah. And I actually lived in Louisiana for a long time. My whole family is there. And I used LDF's resources to make sure I understood what was going on with the redistricting effort. And I'm, again, still so mad at what's gone on. And anyway, just y'all have done incredible work. And I'm really glad you're there. So to answer your question, an example that I'm actually I'm really proud of is what we've done on abortion and reproductive health this year. To provide a little bit of historical context, abortion is an incredibly like tense issue in the disability community, and that has a lot to do with issues related to selective abortion and the fact that so many people who pursue prenatal testing decide to abort their fetus if it tests positive for things like Down syndrome. That's a hugely concerning issue. Up until very recently, our organization had not taken a position on abortion, reproductive health, or reproductive justice. And we were able to work with our board to take a position to say that any restriction on abortion is wrong and will not solve the issues at stake and that bodily autonomy is a core principle of the disability rights movement. As a result of that position, we were able to incorporate related positions on abortion and reproductive justice and healthcare into our Rev Up Voting Issues Guide so that in our work with various state coalitions, we can highlight, you know, abortion is on the ballot and the issues that this brings up for disabled people. And I think what's really important is that the majority of people with disabilities don't identify as disabled. Like, do you all know somebody who will say like, yeah, I've got this condition, but you say like, isn't that a disability? And they're like, no. What I think we are trying to do this year is make sure that folks who may not see themselves kind of in the category of disability can still see themselves in our materials. I'm really excited about what we're going to be able to do and what comes next. Thank you so much, you two, for, again, really showcasing in real time how folks are working together, learning from one another, and pushing forward a shared civil rights agenda. I really appreciate you two for doing that. So look, if folks are not yet convinced on all of the reasons why one should vote, all of the things that are on the ballot, what can we do to bring them along? So at the start of the conversation, I talked about how if someone tells me not to do something, oh, I'm about to do it, right? Can we offer the perspective that voting is in fact an act of defiance, right? That by staying at home, 
that by sort of settling into this posture of, you know, my vote doesn't count, it's not going to matter, right, that that really gets no one individually or collectively anywhere. So how can we motivate folks like, hey, you want to do something that you're not supposed to do? Well, hey, go ahead and vote. I think you all have made a compelling case in this conversation. But look, if someone is still not convinced, what do we say to them, Cece? How is an act of voting consistent with sort of defying the sort of societal expectations? Voting is an act of defiance because it is stronger, like collective power. And we've seen over time that they know that we're stronger together and that voting is a direct act of saying, hey, we're going to come together as a community and make this decision. So, yes, a decision that you make in federal and midterm elections in Kansas is going to affect me as a black woman from Detroit. The votes that you cast in your school board election or your local parish or county elections, those are going to matter to other little black girls in your county. So it's a way that you can have a positive impact on someone else's life. It's also a way that you can have a negative impact in someone else's life. So I don't want to put the weight of the world on your shoulders. And it's not on your shoulders, but it is like on your elbow. So <laughs> there's there's certain lists that I think is a community that we need to come together and pull together. And ultimately is your choice. We do want you to feel full autonomy and who you vote for and how you vote, but it's not a burden. It's honestly like I found voting in elections when I needed autonomy in my life and when I felt like every decision was being made for me and then like loans and debt and everything was just kind of coming on me. And then I found elections and it was a way for me to find my voice and impact others and create change so that others didn't have to go through what I was currently going through. So I think my final word is that it is your decision. You have autonomy, but just try to think of community and as a collective and what can that do for you and what can that do for generations that come after you? Perfect. Thank you, Cece. Maria? I think it's really important that we acknowledge that a lot of people who may choose not to vote are still engaged in a whole lot of ways. And I think this idea that it's this binary of choosing to vote or choosing to stay home is completely false. That may be true for some people, but it's not true for everyone. And I think if we start from a place of like, don't choose to stay home and go vote, it turns people off immediately. One conversation might say like, hey, I know that you were out here organizing for clean water in Jackson. Can you go stop by the polling place the next time you go out for your shift? I know you're out here helping big brothers and big sisters and helping to make sure that kids have something to do after school. Next time you're at this community center, can you go cast a vote? Like recognizing how people are already contributing, I think can be really powerful. I also think for a lot of people, myself included, voting can be an enormous hassle, both during the pandemic and when we are seeing so many threats of violence associated with voting, it can be a threat to people's physical safety and lives. Part of convincing people to vote is telling them how you are going to show up for them. What do you need? What can I do for you? How can we support each other? Voting is about collective power, but that collective power, that community power, community support actually starts before someone casts their ballot. There have been so many times where I would not have been able to vote because of physical access issues to a polling place or to a ballot box if I hadn't had other people with me. And that's frustrating for me, right? Because I should be able to go vote independently and anonymously, just like the laws they were supposed to. But that's not real for me and that's not real for a whole lot of people. How am I going to show up for you to help you vote? And how are we going to show up together to increase our collective political power? Absolutely. Maria, 
as we talk about ways in which we can show up for those folks who want to vote, can you talk a little bit about some of those barriers, specifically barriers for the disability community that we need to work on eliminating in order to ensure we're doing our part right? You're exactly right. We should make the assumption that folks don't want to vote, that it's an either or I'm going to stay on my couch or I'm all out. I'm about to go to the ballot box and get my I voted today sticker, right? What can we do to ensure that we are giving folks the supports they need, the resources they need to vote? So I think Cece already mentioned some great things. You know, she talked about polling place accessibility. She talked about things like parking and doors. But there are so many barriers. I think one huge barrier is ID requirements. Many disabled people do not drive. Again, there's a huge chunk of older adults, particularly older adults of color, who do not have current IDs. Making sure that voting is not contingent upon having a current ID will remove huge barriers to voting. I think the core issues that so many of us are motivated by, extending voting hours, increasing access to things like ballot boxes and drive-through voting, all of these things will remove barriers. But for a lot of people with disabilities, what we need to know is, will there be somebody at the polling place who is actually going to know how to operate the accessible ballot marking device? Are you going to make sure that this device actually works? Uh, Again, I'll use myself as an example. One time I went to vote, I need an accessible machine because I need to sit when I vote, and it wasn't working. So I go to the poll worker and I say, "Uh, hi, is there any way we can get this machine to work? And they say, it's a short ballot, you'll be fine. So my options were like, be forced to stand, right, which is very difficult for me to do or not vote. One time because I didn't have a Texas ID, actually twice, because I didn't have a Texas specific ID, I was told I couldn't vote. And thankfully, because I knew my rights, I had to say like, no, this is wrong. But for a lot of people, that conversation is not something that they feel comfortable or safe doing. And so who's going to be there for them? Things like providing water for folks standing in line is getting harder in states like Georgia. That is a disability voting rights issue. Things like providing transportation. This is one of the things that we were able to do with RevUp Texas and in RevUp Georgia as well. We provided funding for state disability vote coalitions to mobilize transportation, particularly for rural voters, and they were able to help get folks to the polls. I find this very frustrating. A lot of times Uber and Lyft and other transit network companies will provide free rides to the polls, which is awesome, and I'm really glad they do that. But these services also will tell you that they are technology companies and not transportation services, so they do not have to provide accessible service, which means that disabled people are left out in the cold. So we have to figure out ways to provide our own accessible transportation to the polls, and doing so can be hugely helpful. Many disabled people choose to vote from home. Sometimes that process is not accessible. Ballots are confusing. And so what ways can you provide support to disabled people who may be voting from home or voting from a congregate setting to ensure that they're able to get their votes in on time and things like signature verification processes don't cause their votes to be thrown out in the end? I want to just highlight that we need poll workers. As much as we need poll monitors and we need folks to make sure we check and uplift polling locations to check their accessibility and that they're nice and safe. An issue that Maria encountered with going into the polling location machines, I used to work at Department of Elections in Detroit. And as a trainer, it was really fantastic. And I was excited to teach these things to my poll workers. However, the poll worker age in Detroit is leaning towards those who are not as familiar with technology. So if you are sitting you know, at home and you are like, 
oh, you know, it's September, you still have a lot of time to go through training to be a poll worker. We need you in the polls working on election day to make sure that folks are able to access these machines because it's just a bit of sometimes a generational difference in learning that that is a bit of technology, but we wanna make sure that everyone has access to the ballot and you might notice things that others may not. So it is really, really important to be a poll worker. If you wanna know what steps you can take after election day, oh, I got some news for you. It's some things you can do before election day. So go ahead and go through trainings, become a poll worker. There's even financial incentive in most states. So I do wanna make sure that I highlight that as well. And that is a key accessibility issue for many folks is to make sure that you are actually there working the polls and there's not a poll shortage. And we're not putting like a lot of elderly or more seasoned folks in harm's way either with COVID-19 being still pandemic. So we want to make sure that we're looking out for one another there as well. We need diverse poll workers, especially poll workers who speak more languages than English. This comes up consistently in our work with organizations like Voto Latino or Asian Americans Advancing Justice. Having poll workers who don't just show you a sheet and point and who can actually explain what's happening and explain the process can make the difference between folks feeling confident in voting and folks choosing not to vote. Diverse poll workers, absolutely. We need them. We need to figure out how to make sure that our polling places are accessible that are represented by the diverse constituency of folks who are going to be turning out to vote. Cece, are there additions you would make to that list in terms of what we need to do to make sure we're resourcing and supporting folks in getting to the ballot box? I would recommend tapping in with what's in your community. So a lot of what LDF does is that we work with local state county partners. So we can say roll into the polls in Montgomery, um, or we can say one voice in Mississippi. So knowing what your state needs and who's working in your state is the easiest way to tap in. You are more than welcome to go on NAACPLDF.org and go to our website and see a lot of the partners that we work with and also find state-specific resources so you can know what's going on in your community, even uplifting what Maria said in terms of the ballot process, especially if you want to vote absentee or early voting can be extremely difficult. So knowing how to get ahead of that, if you or your mother or your father or a family member or loved one is planning on voting in that process, there are steps you're going to need to do ahead of time. So those resources are available on our website. So just not just be informed, but let's y'all, let's be involved. Like this is the time. Like if there's any time to save democracy, y'all, it is literally today. Like look at your clock. That time that you're seeing right now is the time to be involved in saving democracy. Because when I say it's not promised tomorrow, it's not. But as we've been uplifting this entire episode is that it's going to take collective power. Yeah, you heard that you word in your ear. I'm talking to you. (laughs) You are going to be so important to, you know, building a better future and having a democracy as good as its ideals, as my lovely leadership conference loves to say. So that is a key thing. It's just making sure that you are personally involved. You are more than welcome to reach out to me personally. And again, those resources will be at NAACPLDF.org. So CC, you have identified how folks can get involved, how they can connect with resources at LDF. Maria, how can folks get involved with you? National Disability Voting Rights Week is September 12th through the 16th uh, through RevUp. And if you want to, you can go to apd.com backslash RevUp and find all of our resources. If you don't want to be a partner for our kind of week of action, that's great. Because guess what? As CC mentioned, like anytime is a good time to save democracy and we need partners all year round. So we've got all kinds of resources regarding key issues for disabled voters, disability voting rights across the country. And then soon we will have a disability voting rights guide for all 50 states and territories, which I'm very excited about. AAPD.com backslash rev up. We could continue this conversation. (laughs) 
for many more hours. However, we are definitely approaching time. And so I want to really just acknowledge what a great conversation we have had. We talked a lot today about giving folks something to vote for, making sure that folks are able to vote, eligible to vote. And public safety is certainly on the ballot. Community safety is on the ballot. And so Vote for Justice wants to educate folks on those community safety issues they should be thinking about when they are considering what elected they're going to install, and also thinking about the disenfranchisement that has occurred with respect to those with criminal histories. So we want to make sure that we don't have continued barriers to any population. But right now we know that there are a good number of laws on the books that prevent folks with criminal histories from voting. So Vote for Justice is also pushing for a platform that would install electeds who do not support that. Let's be sure to circle back to all of the resources that all of my colleagues have offered today. Let me also plug our Vote for Justice effort, which comes out of our Vision for Justice platform, which is at visionforjustice.org. This has been such a great conversation. I want to give a special thanks to my guests, Cece Huddleston and Maria Town, for joining us today. We truly appreciate you sharing your time and adding your voice to Pod for the Cause. Listeners, thank you for joining us today on Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund. To stay connected with us, please visit civilrights.org and hit us up on Instagram and Twitter at civilrights.org. You can also text us at civilrights, that's two words, civilrights, to 52199 to keep up with our latest updates. And be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. And special thanks to our executive producer, Evan Hartung, and our production team, Graham Bashai, Banu Aman, Tatiana Montavo, Sarah Edwards, Dina Craig, and Shin Inoue. That's it from me, your host, Kanya Bennett. Until next time, together, let's keep fighting for an America as good as its ideals. Hey.